Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, are you fash? Yes. Are you fash or are you anti-fash? <laughs> how can it... How can we be living in a world that someone would even ask me that question? Oh, this question's like the new hello. It's a question everyone's asking. The autocratic president of Hungary, Viktor Orban, definitely fash, recently spoke at CPAC, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference. Putin is fash, even though he claims Ukrainians are fash. And our former president, clearly fash, loves him. And as we're learning from the January 6th commission and investigation, the assault on Congress organized by Trump was every bit as intentional an action um, as an action by the black shirts under Mussolini. And anti-fascists or Antifa are, of course, the biggest villains on Fox News. I really, I really, really thought that fighting fascism was something that I would only encounter in my lifetime in old movies. Well, you're lucky then, because today we have Anthony Mara on the show, and his new novel is about the Hollywood of the early 1940s, the rise of fascism in Europe in the late 1930s, and fascist apologists in the U.S. But not set in 2020, set in 1940s and 30s. I know, it just seems like it could be right (laughs) now. Um, So today, Tony's joining us to talk about his new novel, which is called Mercury Pictures Presents. And he's here to discuss what we can learn about today's politics by looking at an earlier rise in fascism and the way Americans and people around the world responded to it. Anthony Mora is the New York Times bestselling author of The Czar of Love and Techno and A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, long listed for the National Book Award and winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, as well as the Anisfeld, Anisfield Wolf Book Award in Fiction. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a, a big fan and delighted to be on. Thank you so much for that. And we've talked a lot about the global rise in fascism and authoritarianism on this podcast. And we've done episodes on authoritarian or authoritarian friendly politicians and governments in Poland, Myanmar, China, Russia, and India, just to name a few. And we've covered the American rights ongoing interest in putting the kibosh in democracy here. But we haven't talked a lot about the period in which your novel is set, the 1930s and 40s, which was the last time our democracy and the world generally was threatened by fascism and authoritarianism in this kind of large-scale way. And you've spoken about it as a historical benchmark for human evil and possibility, both. So when you wrote this novel, were you thinking about the connections between that, that time and now? When I began working on this book, it was, um, it was 2014. Obama was halfway through his second term. Democracy seemed reasonably secure. Things so, so and, much uh, happier then. Wow. <laughs> I know. Little did we know what lay around the bend. I thought that this was going to be a historical novel firmly, you know, landlocked in the past. Um, it's never a good sign when, when a novel set in the 1940s becomes topical, is it? Um, I, uh, I ultimately... Ultimately, think that historical novels tend to describe the periods in which they're written as much as the periods in which they're set, and I think it's it's really one of the values um, of the historical novel as as a form. It's um, its capacity to place issues that we're struggling with today into the wider continuum of human affairs. So whether that's the, you know, the origins of the American First Movement, the spread of propaganda and misinformation, um, refugees fleeing war in Europe, 
I think that that one of the the themes that I've returned to again and again in, in all of my works is how history is distorted by political actors in the present in Constellation um, that was dramatized through a, a historian who is endlessly revising his history of Chechnya in order to conform to the um, prevailing political mandates of of the time. Nearly every story in my second book, The Czar of Love, Love and Techno, deals with the, the manipulation of history. And it's explored in Mercury Pictures Presents through film, uh, film propaganda. And one of the reasons that I keep returning to this, I think, is because the historical novel as a form is um, often plagued with nostalgia, which is is something that I um, actively try to write against. And so I think that an important aspect of engaging with historical fiction as a form is examining how and why history becomes fictionalized in in politics. And I think that that's something that you know over the last um, the last five or six years we um, you know have have come to uh, a whole new understanding of um, in you know the national debate. So if you started the novel in 2014, I mean, you've been working on it for a while, which I can appreciate because it takes me a long time to write my books. Um, uh, so there must have been a point when you recognize like, oh, looky here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th this is, uh, uh, shall we say, a long awaited um, uh, uh, novel. Um, yeah, it, it was it was sort of during um, during the run up to the 2016 election where I, I first began to really see the um, the parallels between um, so much of what uh, these characters are struggling with um, and what you know many people in um, in the US in 2016 were in in terms of trying to understand um, you know this this rising threat the the appeal that authoritarianism has to you know so many um, of our fellow citizens and you know how we go about um, trying to piece together an understanding of the the reality that we inhabit in in this world increasingly subsumed by fictions. So, I mean, one of the ways that your book works, and I was very impressed by, is by resurrecting stories about life under actual fascism, particularly in Italy. And you know, it helped me imagine how such a regime might happen here in the United States. You know, I was particularly interested in the character of Giuseppe Lagana, who's a lawyer um, and who gets caught up uh, sort of at odds with Mussolini's regime. Could you talk a little bit about him and how he gets into trouble? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Giuseppe is the father of the novel's central character, Maria Lagana, and he works as a defense attorney in Rome, primarily defending um, socialists and anarchists prosecuted by the state. And to me, he is this heartbreaking figure in that he continues to believe in the rule of law, in the impartiality of the court, um, in the nobility of defending the accused, even as Mussolini's regime chips and chips and chips away um, at the underpinnings of the justice system, uh, eventually instituting these tribunals that pass sentences without trials altogether. And Giuseppe's way of sort of trying to quietly uh, resist that is simply to document um, the lawlessness of these tribunals, which 
eventually leads to his own arrest, and he is sentenced to Confino, which was a system of internal exile in which opponents of the fascist regime were sent to isolated towns in southern Italy. My great-grandmother's family um, is from Lipari, which is an island off the coast of Sicily, and this was uh, one of the largest of these Confino settlements. And so Giuseppe's arc, going from defense lawyer to defendant to a a convict who can only escape Confino with the help of an actual criminal is representative to me of the gradual collapse um, of rule and law in, in Italy. And it's, it's one of those things where you can see sort of through Giuseppe, through his, his, gradual, um, his gradual realization that, that the world that he believed um, he was living in had slipped away much earlier than he had thought. And, and I always felt as I was working on that, you know, during the Trump years, just, just seeing how, how much of, of, you know, things that I believed in, um, about America, uh, turned out to be empty. Um, and how many, um, aspects of my own relationship to, uh, to my country were, um, built on this, you know, sort of false mythology. Um, that was certainly something that, that Giuseppe's character helped illuminate for me in my own personal life. Giuseppe's also one of my favorite characters and there's, um, I was reminded actually of conversations I had had with lawyers who would sort of tell me that they were documenting for precisely the reason that Giuseppe documents, which made it feel very alive to me. And there's a remarkable early scene um, where Giuseppe and Maria, who you spoke of, are attending a showing of the movie The Monster of Frankenstein in Rome. And the showing is broken up by Mussolini's black shirts who bust into the theater and declare the art decadent. And there's sort of like this parallel action going on in the movie and their, their destruction. And they're fascinated by the movie. And it's it's an amazing scene. And in L.A., after Maria has fled Italy, she and her boss, Artie Feldman, battle U.S. censors who consider Artie's films decadent and, and too critical of fascism. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of censorship um, coming from different actors in the novel. Yeah. So the um, these sort of forces of reactionary conservatism, I think, have, you know, obviously long embraced censorship as, as a way to mold society to their liking and. The great irony in, in all of it, of, of course, is that it's the very people waving around pocket-sized constitutions who are the first to ban books. Um, in the period covered by this this novel, all movies were censored by an organization called the Production Code Administration. And a lot of this um, uh, resulted in, in sort of like truly ridiculous forms of, of censorship as um, the production code strove to make movies gratuitously inoffensive. For decades, you couldn't show a pregnant woman on screen because it might raise um, uncomfortable questions about ba- where babies really came from. You couldn't show uh, you couldn't show a couple on the same bed unless both of their feet were planted on the ground. Um, if if you remember the movie Psycho. Um, it was uh, chiefly um, sort of scandalous for the fact that it was the first movie in about 30 years to show a toilet bowl. There was in, in the bathroom scene, there was a toilet bowl and a, a toilet bowl had not been seen on screen since the early 30s. Um, of course, the, uh, the much more insidious than this sort of, um, you know, priggish sense of, of morality was the production code's prohibition on politics. If you only received your news in the 1930s from your local picture house, you would um, 
have thought that the American South was untouched by Jim Crow and that Europe was untouched by fascism. By the late 30s, filmmakers were beginning to push back against this, this uh, censorship, often by very convoluted means. Um, for instance, there was a movie made in, in the late 30s about the Spanish Civil War. Um, but the only way that they could, that the filmmakers could get it past the censors was to make it um, a sort of like absurdly unfaithful depiction of the conflict. So they actually brought experts in um, who had, you know, participated in, in the Spanish Civil War um, in order to make sure that the movie was meticulously inaccurate. Um, they made sure that the, the uniforms were all wrong, that the settings were incorrect. Um, and so the only way to make a movie about uh, a true and contentious subject was to turn it into pure fantasy. Um, in September 1941, uh, there were enough of these um, anti-fascist movies that U.S. Um, senators, isolationists in the U.S. Senate, began to uh, held, hold hearings um, to investigate the so-called Hollywood, uh, uh, Hollywood war propaganda. And the heads of the major studios all testified there, and they, they really acquitted themselves uh, brilliantly. They... Um, they more or less used the opportunity um, to reveal, you know, the the hypocrisy behind the investigations themselves. And three months later, following Pearl Harbor, those filmmakers and executives were, of course, fully, fully vindicated. And one of the ways that the different kinds of censorship intersect across borders here is that in the figure of Maria, um, who corresponds with her father, who is in San Lorenzo confined in the in the manner that you described earlier and they're corresponding and and his letters are censored and then she uses kind of her her knowledge of how things are censored or how to get things past censored um, in the film industry, which I thought was so interesting. And then there's also quite a bit of there are characters who are in really quiet ways like censoring themselves or by strategizing about censorship or behaving in response to censorship are they're altering what they might say in ways that they almost don't recognize. Yeah, I'm. 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 I. I kind of feel like, um, like we all, you know, we we have so a certain number of themes that we keep returning to, a certain number of ideas that kind of animate our work, and uh, for whatever reason, censorship is one that I've I've returned to, um, you know, in in several of of my books. Do, do you all find that in in your own, you know, in 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 your own work that like you're kind of almost like reshuffling. Uh, the, the the same deck of cards in, in each um in each new project yeah i there are themes that i go back to all the time sure absolutely i think that's true for everyone you know i mean i just think i wanted to point out you know like the back of the lawyer thing like you know when trump is was appointing so many judges right that's when i started to, that's that you know you're the way that the legal system in, in italy changed in the 30s to cease to be really a legal system and be like an authoritarian legal system that doesn't apply rule of law anymore you know, I started realizing, oh, that was kind of the idea that that's why it was so important to him to get judges. If you can sort of end the way the court system works, you get around that, then you start moving toward authoritarianism. You know, similarly, you know, when you start controlling information and you start leaning on, you know, uh, calling things decadent, you can use decadence, quote unquote, right? Like the kiss in the recent Buzz Lightyear movie or whatever it is you want to call decadent to suppress political content that you don't like. And that's what you're also talking about here is that is that the real reason that, that censorship was going on in the 30s and 40s and, and in your novel, the, the head censor is a Catholic, surely not an accident. And, um, you know, he is really concerned about 
not hearing a lot of criticism for fascism. And so he uses sex as an excuse to basically censor that political side. And I feel like that's exactly what's happening today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like it, 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 um, it, it often it's criticisms towards, um, towards changes in culture are, are camouflage for, you know, these, these very, um, very specific and intense, uh, political ideologies and agendas. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, um, I, 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 I'm very, I, I feel like now, now I'm, now I'm the interviewer. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, um, like, like what you all think about, um, about the, uh, sort of the changes in censorship over, over time, because one of the, one of the things that, um, that I was thinking about, um, you know, as, um, as over the last, you know, several months, just, just reading the news and, and seeing, um, talking about, um, book bannings and, and, um, and all of that is just how, how, much less effective censorship is today. Um, I'm not sure if it's a result of, um, of that of of technology just giving us so much access to information that that if you know if if your um if your local library bans a, a particular book there are just so many more um venues for you to find it in um but i i, I do think that that censorship um maybe it's also that in in the present day we've just become um you know hopefully somewhat more um educated about the um the intentions and motivations behind censorship and and um but i could be talking complete bullshit so um <laughs> so i'd love to hear i'd love to hear hear, hear your thoughts sugi I don't think you're talking complete bullshit, but I guess I wonder who are the we who know how censorship operates because there's obviously like a whole set of people who are buying what's being sold, you know? Um, yeah. And right now, I, I don't know if you've seen, there's this list of books that have been banned in, I think, Utah um, hmm. that's going around. And it has like, I don't know, some books on it. I mean, a huge number of those books are LGBTQIA um, associated books. And then some of them are like bestsellers. Mm -hmm. And so there's this increased surveillance, but then there's also these increased ways to get around it in a population that maybe is better at getting around some of the things that we might expect to be censorship. But then it does seem like there's this, yeah, this other set of people who are, I mean, who's the audience for the propaganda, right? Like, I mean, someone's putting out mm -hmm. these, I mean, who's putting, someone puts out the propaganda movies and someone sits in the audience and, and cheers and feels good about watching it. And, mm -hmm. um, and there are parts of me that like, you know, I know I, I like a good montage in a movie with like a, like a rousing Hans Zimmer score. Like I can't pretend that that part of me is not there. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm, how has censorship changed over time? I think that my wariness of the American government has certainly increased. And that's maybe mm -hmm. the thing that I would mark the most. But um, I'm curious, um, Whitney, maybe what you would say about this. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's a legitimate issue because I think that people are, for instance, the the criticism of the 1619 Project um, that, that came out and then that resulted in sort of was the fact we did a couple episodes on book banning earlier on um, and one of the things that came that came out is that when you have when you're in a conservative state or a state that's run by conservatives like Florida the teachers start getting really worried about what they can and cannot teach um, so when you're dealing with public school teachers or pu even even public university professors professors are a little bit more protected than school teachers but I do think that that censorship and and state 
rules on what you can and cannot teach really will start to affect the what uh, high school and middle school and elementary school teachers feel comfortable teaching. And that actually can change the way kids are educated. And I, I think that's why conservatives are concerned with that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And we actually had a really interesting conversation about this with Farah Jasmine Griffin. Um, and one of the things that we were talking to her about and that I think is so interesting is like there are these communities um, where there's a strong tradition of community education outside of the school system because the school system is not to be trusted, um, which I feel like I see specifically in black and Jewish communities. Um, and it's something I wish my own community had more of. And we really know. But that seems like a thing that gets around censorship that is sort of mm-hmm. beyond any particular era. And so sort of, I don't know, so much of what we're talking about is also, at least for me, tied to kind of like, yeah, the generational transfer of knowledge, which maybe is one of the things I'm obsessed with and, um, (laughs) and which you portray so beautifully because right. So much of your novel is about like these immigrants who are working in Hollywood and the way that their kind of knowledge of the quote unquote old world um, is moving into these Hollywood spaces where propaganda is produced and, um, argued about and acted upon. And um, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about like deciding to come at Hollywood kind of from that angle and if you would read to us a little bit from the book. Absolutely, yeah. So I um, I was really – so I, I, I used to live in L.A. and, and um, my wife is from there and I've always been fascinated with, with this particular period in the, the 1930s um, and 40s when you had this – just incredible cultural transfusion of emigres moving from Europe to to LA. Um, you had, you know, Thomas Mann was writing Dr. Faustus in the Pacific Palisades. Billy Wilder and Fritz Lang were creating film noir by combining German expressionism with hard-boiled American pulp. And um, the the ways that these various characters, uh, excuse me, that these various emigres. Um, both reinvented themselves intentionally and sort of had various forms of reinvention imposed upon them um, were, was um, an idea that, that I was just always drawn to um, and that I was particularly interested in, in exploring um, with uh, a couple characters in this scene that I'm going to read right now. Um, this, is, uh, this is a scene um, sort of early, early-ish in the book. It's... Um, features Artie Feldman, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Mercury Pictures. And he is going to a business lunch to meet, um, to meet his brother. And um, I think that this gives a pretty, pretty decent sense of, of sort of the various forms of, of reinvention and, and, and the ways in which artifice and reality kind of, um, Kind of conflict and and uh, feed upon one another um, in in this novel and in the movie business um, generally. If you wanted to be seen conducting business over lunch, few places offered better visibility than Romanov's on Rodeo Drive. It was a panopticon of banquettes thoughtfully arrayed to ensure you were visible to everyone but your dining companion. You could chart rising and falling careers based purely on whom the maitre d' seated where. Artie felt eyes on him when he walked in. He heard the wing beats of unfurling tablecloths. 
the bright chime of silverware on porcelain, the pianist lunging through Schoenberg with the violent elegance of a cat stalking a butterfly across the keyboard. The eponymous owner stood at the Matridis stand, stroking his pencil-thin mustache. Hiya, Prince Mike, Artie said, tossing his keys to a red-vested valet. Prince Michael looked up with those dark, melancholic eyes that had witnessed Empire's end. To hear him tell it, Prince Michael Romanov was of THE Romanovs. It never ended well for the children of families whose fame was confirmed by the definite article. The Romanovs, the Frankensteins, the Donners. Once, Michael Romanov was nephew to Nicholas II, and now he managed a restaurant that served pineapple and cottage cheese salad. But as Artie knew well, Prince Michael Romanov was neither Romanov nor royal. He was Harry Gergeson of the Brooklyn Gergesons. And before becoming a prince, he pressed pants for a living. It was hard not to love a town where a pants presser could rise to the rank of deposed royalty. Everyone knew that Michael Romanov was as fake as his, as his Oxbridge accent, and anywhere else this revelation would lead to social excommunication. But here, here, Michael Romanov was royalty. Who among his regular clientele hadn't changed their names? Who wasn't an airbrush artist of autobiography? You couldn't help admiring a guy for doing what you were doing, only less restrained by shame or plausibility. What got Artie, however, was that even though everyone knew Michael Romanov was a fraud, he was still paid to consult on pictures about the Russian imperial family. It was an Orosboros of bullshit. A man who built his artifice from movie fantasies became the authority legitimizing and propagating those fantasies. They weren't remotely realistic. But then again, what kind of masochist enjoys realism? Realism is everywhere. It stinks. Artie had emigrated from Europe to escape all that dour realism. If Manhattan critics privileged by with Anglo surnames and Ivy League pedigrees fetishized realism, it was because they resided in realms more artificial than any Artie conjured. As a young man, after long days training at the boxing gym, Artie had worked as a doorman at a Broadway theater where the Park Avenue set paid top dollar to watch Ibsen jerkoffs get screwed six ways to Sunday. The lesson was that rich, rich people would recognize the humanity of poor people, provided the poor people weren't real. Artie had vowed never to cater to people who read reviews or went to the theater or had Park Avenue property beyond what they erected on the Monopoly board. He understood what his audience understood. No one truly touched by reality believes it worth honoring. What monster or dullard provisioned with Hollywood's godly powers would reproduce life as it was without revision or redemption? And if the wor world narrowed to what you could revise or redeem, then for Artie Feldman, it scarcely existed beyond the borders of a film frame. Thank you. I find that passage really interesting because, you know, of course, Amer the idea of American reinvention has been something that's cherished in our culture and celebrated, uh, particularly by Hollywood, the idea that, that immigrants could come from Europe and go to Hollywood and become you know, movie producers or whatever they became, uh, actors, writers, whatever. Um, 
And, you know, Michael Romanoff's con is harmless and beautiful in its way. And, and there are other acts of reinvention in the novel that are pretty un unambiguously positive. Uh, but when reading these passages, I also think of that the bad guys are learning this reinvention trick. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I start thinking of Trump reinventing himself from, you know, TV star to becoming a conservative politician when he used to be a Democrat, you know, that and you see all kinds of. I can think of Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos, or however you say that guy's name, reinventing himself as various different kinds of conservative. Um, and so I wonder, at what point does this reinvention that we have celebrated, and there are hints of this in, in the passage you just read as well, what, what point does America's positive belief in reinvention become a toxic thing that is used against us? Yeah, I think that like like most sort of uh, most myths in, in our culture, there are, you know, positive and, and negative aspects to it. I think that... Um, that the that American culture often cherishes this idea of of reinvention as this um, as this unalloyed good, um, you know whether it's true or not. The myth that this is a country where you can have a second chance is you know a, a lovely idea. Um, in in the novel, I was interested in how um, reinvention is is not simply a choice that individual characters make, but is in in some cases a condition imposed upon them against their will. Um, so, for instance, many you know thousands of exiles came to Hollywood in the '30s and '40s. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright once said that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in Los Angeles. And, and this was certainly the case um, during these years. The majority were Jewish or dissident refugees fleeing persecution in, uh, in Europe. And yet when America entered the war, these refugees were classified as enemy aliens and denied the very rights and freedoms that their movies championed. Um, during the war, Jewish emigres from Berlin ironically noted that they had to immigrate to America to become German again. And this idea of, of having an identity that you don't, um, you don't necessarily associate yourself with, that you don't want, that, that you are, have become reinvented in a way that you didn't choose and weren't interested in, um, seems as part of, of the idea of, you know, of the American uh, myth of reinvention as, as do those stories of, you know, somebody coming here and um, creating a great new life for themselves. I think that um, that the ways that people are reinvented against their will is is maybe a less, um, you know, a, a, a less popular uh, aspect of that myth. But I think it's an important one. And so this leads me basically perfectly to my question that I want to ask about Eddie Liu, um, who's this fantastic character, who's Maria's boyfriend, and he's a Chinese American actor who struggles to find work until people because of the war are, are kind of thrilled to, to cast him as a villain and specifically a Japanese villain. And I was reminded of, um, you know, um, there've been a couple of portrayals of, of anime Wong, um, in fiction and in, in poetry recently, I'm thinking of Peter Ho Davies, the fortunes and, um, Sally, uh, Wen Mao's, um, poetry collection um oh my goodness i'm not remembering the title but which she is also, also um, she also featured in um delayed rays of a star um oh which i, I can't read. i can't remember the author's name it, it came out maybe two years ago yeah okay um but yeah so i was sort of thinking of um right this there are i mean in in hollywood film history these um 
Chinese actors, Chinese American actors who have been cast in these Broadways um, who faced the problem that Eddie faces. Uh, and this also was reminding me, as I am reading now, um, about the pandemic and Trump instigated anti-Asian violence, which kind of smears Asians and maybe specifically East Asians together and makes this category in a way that, that Hollywood is sort of making this category for Eddie that he doesn't want to be in. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that character. Yeah. So Eddie is uh, a virtuoso actor. He um, is really one of the only characters in the novel who's genuinely <laughs> talented. Um, um, it's sort of everybody else is kind of a hack and he, <laughs> and he, you know, is, is actually this, this brilliant actor and he spent his entire career, um, typecast in roles that are far below his, his talent and dignity. He's actually the only major character in the novel who was born in the U S but because of, you know, these, of the, the, the racist typecasting that was universal in, in Hollywood at the time and in many way, uh, ways extends to the present day, he feels as much of an outsider, if not more, than the exiles and emigres he works alongside with. Um, following Pearl Har Harbor, he gets hired to play Japanese villains at Mercury. And like many of the characters in the book, the war puts him in this position where his livelihood comes into direct conflict with his conscience. He really, you know, abhors the, uh, the roles that he's been assigned, but he is also determined to take advantage of this, this narrow window when he has a bit of bargaining power in a industry that has long marginalized him. And this is all further complicated by the fact that, um, that white audiences are completely unable to separate Eddie from the characters that he plays. So I wanted to talk to you about, uh, one last thing here that I have, we've talked some about this on the podcast that I have this theory and I'm not the only person who has this theory that the right has started to learn from and use tricks that the left used to use successfully, you know, in terms of rhetoric and in terms of storytelling. And I'm going to quote this line that already has sort of later in the book when he's watching propaganda film about Japanese uh, uh, people in America that's accusing them of being dangerous. Right. And he says, Conspiracy was one of Hollywood's most reliable plot engines, but by encouraging audiences to accept the plausibility of conspiracies in peacetime had already primed audiences to see enemies everywhere in war. Weren't these stab-in-the-back fantasies as perverse as any found in German propaganda reels? And weren't fears of fascism coming to America borne out by the concentration camps going up in the California desert? You see how he begins to wonder, like, hey, is the stuff I'm doing being used by bad the bad guys also? You know, people who oppose my my work. I wonder if you could talk about that. And also, if you see that, do we do we not do we know now that there are th that liberal film directors in Hollywood are making movies that are doing things right now that are eventually going to be co-opted in a negative way? Can you think of any examples of that? I thought we could just sort of kick that around for a minute. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that I was really struck by in the Trump years is the fact that many of the conspiracy theories that emerged in that time felt pulled directly from the plots of bad action movies. The, um, the very idea of the deep state, for instance, um, that there are these shadowy forces in the government pulling the strings, features in just about every geopolitical thriller that's been produced, you know, in the last several years. Like decades. Days of the Condor, you know, like Robert Redford, a yeah. famous liberal, you know, but then suddenly the right's thinking in exactly that way, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the Jason Bourne movies, which are terrifically entertaining, you know, I love them, but, um, but they're all about these, you know, sinister forces deep in the, in the CIA that are, um, you know, out to, to screw over, um, you know, the little guy. Um, and, and part of me wonders if, if the, the merging of politics and entertainment in recent years, sort of like the, the Fox Newsification of, um, of everything, for lack of a better term, um, if it's made, made it easier for conspiracy th- theories to jump from the realm of, of fantasy into the political sphere. Um, you know, I, I think that this is one of the reasons why it's, it's so dangerous to, um, to desire politic, the political process to be entertaining. Um, if the most that we can expect from our political institutions is spectacle and drama and entertainment, then I think we're, we're in a pretty scary place. Um, I think that one of the, the sort of the most unsettling aspects of conspiracy theories is, is how no matter, um, no matter how grotesque or outlandish they might be, I think they're, they, they flourish because they promise um, explanation. Um, in that sense, I think they almost like they, they fill a similar a similar role in the in the psyche that religion does. That there um, there must be some like deeply entrenched need to believe in a kind of organizing force, no matter how you know unlikely or ridiculous that guides uh, the chaos of life. Um, but but bring it bringing it back to to Hollywood fantasies. Um, one of the features of pretty much every conspiracy theory plot in in film is that there is always one man and and he is almost always a man um who is able to see and and rectify um uh you know the conspiracy theories that are the conspiracies that are threatening uh america and so i don't think it takes you know a huge leap of the imagination to see how voters raised on jason bourne and iron man would be drawn into the um, you know, I, I alone can fix it, Trumpian rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, that's very Marvel, I mean, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it's also, I mean, we're so drawn to narratives of the presidency. And so we struggle with narratives of like Congress, mm-hmm. um, right? Any like any collective body that's participating in our government. I mean, how do we even talk about the judiciary? How do we, I mean, it's, it's so much easier for us to be like, then there was one guy. And as you're talking, I can't help but think of the movie Lockout, which I don't know if you've seen, but um, no, I haven't. it's hilarious. Um, and it is, um, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an action movie that's about a maximum security prison in space. Um, <laughs> and, you, you had me there. I, I, I'm in. <laughs> and then there's, there's one guy who, you know, and there's always, there's always that one guy. And like, I, I don't know, like I'm, trained by the narratives that I read from when I was very small to latch on to like, you know, um, a stranger comes to town and solves everything or mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like this one person will rise and redeem themselves. But, um, it seems like, yeah, I, I guess one of my continual obsessions also is how can we do a better job of telling collective stories? And that's, I think, you know, that's one of the nice things also about this novel that it is an ensemble cast and you're writing against nostalgia. It's also a quite funny novel a lot of the time. And I wonder how you thought about the humor, given the seriousness of the topics with which you're grappling, of course. Well, thank you. I, I, um, um, I, I so I, I, I find that that comedy is, um, to my mind, the most eloquent, eloquent expression of, of absurdity. And I think that these characters are all finding themselves in these fundamentally absurd situations. And um, and comedy becomes a way of kind of both trying to articulate and understand um, 
the, the, the absurdity that, that the world has thrust upon them. I, I also just think that, um, that novels that aren't funny, to some extent, I, I just feel like they share a very different worldview than I do. I, I think that, um, that humor just seems so important to my own, you know, my own life, to my own understanding of, of the world I inhabit, that I feel like even, even a, a novel set in, in serious um, and dark circumstances, I, f- I feel like you need comedy to, um, you know, to, to sort of balance out the tragedy and, and to give it greater, greater weight and force. Well, we appreciate uh, you coming here to talk to us about the book, and we loved reading it, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was such a joy. We really appreciate it. And listeners, don't miss Mercury Pictures Presents, which is out now. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. This show is produced by Ann Kinnigan-North. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there.